tonight we're, hope you had a good weekend, or a good week last week, last Thursday. Um, it was nice, or last Wednesday, I guess. It was nice to, uh, nice to just stay home and, and uh, get ready for the next day. I hope you guys had a good Thanksgiving. Um, tonight we talked about the person, power, and ministry of the Holy Spirit in church history. And the reason I want to talk about this in particular is because there's 2,000 years of history concerning the Holy Spirit that just kind of gets missed in the, like there's things in the New Testament and then, and then there's what we believe today, but there's all this space in there. What, like, what happened? And, and really the objectives that I, I chose for this night are up top on page three. It says uh, first that I want to be able to respond to, it, this comes across negative, I don't mean for it to come across negative, but there's a, there's just a reality that pe some people would say that they don't believe in, in the continuation of the gifts because they're really silent for, you know, 1,800 years or 1,900 years. Really, they weren't in, in the works. And so, 1 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, not really valid for us today because they were for the early church, but, but, but after the first century, maybe first part of the second, but mostly the first century, once the apostles passed away, and, or maybe the second generation, people who are connected to the apostles, and, and possibly even the third connection to the apostles, then it just kind of certain gifts died out, and there's a cessation of gifts. And so the reason I want to talk about this tonight is not because I feel like I need to convince anybody, necessarily. It's that I needed to be reminded again, and we need to be reminded again, that they're really where we, where we stand in our understanding of the continuation of the gifts really is most, we'll, we'll talk about this, is, is, is mostly because the New Testament speaks about it. But it's also, it's also just like been in practice through this 2,000 years, so it's not out of the ordinary. Um, and there's no reason to say that the gifts have ceased based on church history. So wanting just to respond to that objection, and then really, then I already spoke of it this way, to strengthen what we hold to, uh, be the ongoing nature of the Holy Spirit and all His gifts, not only in the apostolic age, but throughout history to this very day. So, again, uh, perhaps comes across a little like a defensive posture, but I just really want to take an honest look at history. And uh, hopefully then be encouraged by the end of the night, uh, not, not by way of like feeling like we are better than somebody else, just, just more, like a little bit more certain. Um, and again, the most important thing that, that we'll point to is, is really, and what we have been pointing to, is what Scripture says. But there's just also what the church has believed and what they've experienced through the years. So um, let me pray, and then we'll jump into the initial thoughts. And I have a, there's a lot of material here, and uh, we won't go through all of it tonight, but uh, we'll try to go through all of the historical part. And then there's a couple of appendices that um, you could read later. Matter of fact, I'd really encourage you to read especially the story of Perpetua. So, Lord, thank you for uh, tonight. Thanks for the food that we've eaten, for the uh, people that have prepared it. Lord, please bless them and strengthen them now. Lord, encourage them as they clean up and thank you for the way that they serve us. There's a, um, there is an activity of your spirit in their lives to serve with joy. And so thank you. Thank you for the time now. We invite you here to open our eyes, open our minds. 
our hearts. Help us to be uh, have the posture of humility as we consider these things that we would leave encouraged. And uh, where questions remain, Lord, that we would continue to take them to you and communicate with one another and to grow together in this. We know that uh, you do far more than what we could ever ask or imagine. We, we know that's true. Uh, at least we know Scripture says it, and, and we want to believe it. And so uh, help us now, Lord, in a way that uh, we couldn't even imagine. So we encourage us in Jesus' name. Amen. Initial thought, first initial thought was they were most certainly not absent. <laughs> so uh, we could just stop there. So it's just like that, we'll, we'll see. We'll see throughout, throughout church history. They just weren't absent. Uh, there, there certainly were areas where there was, was seemingly a little bit like less than what we see in Acts, where it was hap- like all the time. But Acts was some significant accounting from Luke about the beginning of the church. And then, and then uh, you know, the, the printing press was not made for 1,500 more years, you know, or 14, whatever, whatever, how many years it was. So really the accounting was just different. And so, but there is, there are some accountings. So what D.A. Carson says in uh, his book, Showing the Spirit, he says, there is enough evidence that some form of charismatic gifts continued sporadically across the centuries of church history that is futile to insist on doctrinaire grounds that every report is spurious or the fruit of demonic activity or psychological aberration. You get that? So like, like that even comes across a little negative, right? So, but he's responding to people who really say, well, yeah, there's activity because demons are active, you know? And so there's, of course, there's activity. And you go into that whole realm of supernatural stuff and you're just inviting demonic warfare, that kind of stuff. He's saying, okay, look, what the reality is, is the gifts have continued. There's plenty of evidence. And so we want to take a look at some of that evidence. Um, point two, it may surprise some to discover that we have extensive knowledge of but a small fraction of what happened in the history of the church. There's plenty of history in the last number of years, last 2,000 years, but there's not extensive knowledge of history. I, I've got two books here that I'll, that I'll read from a little bit later, but they're, they're from um, uh, the Cappadocian, two, two Cappadocian fathers. Uh, one is, is here, and it's the life of St. Macrina, I mean, it's, it's just this little thin accounting, but it's a fantastic little uh, book. And then this one by St. Basil, um, or Basil, how you say his name, uh, on the Holy Spirit. And it's still, it's like just, it's just a thin little book. So it's just, but there are volumes of the anti-Nicene fathers that just like where this all, all uh, I don't know how many there are, but they're, they're, they look good on a shelf, you know, uh, hard to read, but look good on a shelf. So there's the anti-Nicene fathers, there's the post-Nicene fathers, and there's like, there's like just volume after volume after volume, not of all like supernatural, charismatic, specific events that have to do with gift, spirit gifting, but certainly spirit gifting is involved in all of those things. So there's plenty, but still comparatively speaking, still a small fraction of what we know compared to what actually happened. Um, I put a note down here, just humility. Um, I didn't, I, I just wrote it in here in that paragraph at the bottom of page three. We simply, and, and this, this I, r- I really think we need to consider history like this. We need to be wise and discerning, but we need to look at history with humility. We simply don't know what was happening in the thousands upon thousands of churches and home meetings of Christians in centuries past. Cannot say with confidence that believers regularly prayed for the sick and saw them healed any more than you can say they didn't. You can't say they never prophesied to the comfort, exhortation, and consolation, which is what the purpose is of 
the gift of prophecy is in 1 Corinthians 14, 3, any more than I can say they did. Neither of us can say with any confidence whether countless thousands of Christians throughout the inhabited earth prayed in tongues in their private devotions. There is hardly, um, that is hardly the sort of things for which we could expect extensive documentation. And again, he, uh, you know, just the reality of the printing press, just, just that, that um, the privilege that we have to be able to give um, much insight into what's going on today. Point three on the next page. If the gifts were sporadic, there may be an explanation other than material that they were restricted to the first century. Um, to remember that prior to the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, the average, average Christian did not have access to God's word like we so freely do. One of the beautiful things about the Protestant Reformation, a little bit before and in, in the process over those years, there was a, there was a, um, you know, a, 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 the Bible that was for the people to, to be able to be given to the people. But up until that point, it really was confined to the leaders of the church. And so there was a, uh, a lording it over them, lording it over people by way of like, we know what God's word says. We will tell you what God's word says. And there's just not, there's, there's, um, so people, people may or may not, according to Mark who in, in, uh, um, Turkey, you know, just part of that history of Turkey is that the Catholic Church, Byzantine Empire, stopped sending priests out to the small towns. Of course, there were no Bibles. The priests had the Bibles, so, so they got out there. They were Christian in name, but they never really heard what they believed and why they believed. They were a Christian um, uh, in their heritage, but, but not in their understanding. So, so when the Muslims came through, they were like, you want to stay Christian? You want to become Muslim? And they're like, no. Sounds like the same thing. Sounds like the same God, kind of, you know? So we'll, so we'll just go that way. And it seems easier tax-wise and everything. So um, reality is biblical ignorance was rampant for years and um, hardly the sort of atmosphere in which people would be aware of spiritual gifts, um, much, much less who Jesus is, you know? So... Um, Let's see, jump down to point four on page four. Um, we must also remember that God mercifully blesses us both with what we don't deserve and what we refuse or are unable to recognize. That God is very gracious. I'm persuaded that numerous churches today who advocate cessationism, um, again, which is the, it's not the cessation of all gifts, it's the cessation of certain gifts, certain specific, more, um, Super, uh, I don't want to say supernatural. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, gifts, gifts that would be more spectacular, I suppose. Um, tongues, prophecy, uh, gift of knowledge, uh, things that things that um, you know, things that people throughout history would would say. I've got the gift of tongues, so I'm a little bit better than that guy who's only got the gift of serving or whatever. You know, so. Um, so numerous churches who advocate cessationism experience these gifts but dismiss them as something less than the miraculous manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Not say, saying they, they experience the gift of tongues necessarily, but they do experience certain things um, that are gifts of the Spirit and they just classify them as something else. That was, that was the way I grew up. Um, for example, someone with the gift of discerning spirits, which is a spiritual gift, may be described as possessing remarkable sensitivity and insight in certain churches, right? Which is great. I mean, it's like, okay, that's fine. But it's, 
but someone with the gift of a word of knowledge is rather said to have deep understanding of spiritual truths. You know, so we know there's people like that in other churches that don't believe the gift of knowledge is a gift of knowledge. It is just, man, that guy is just, you know, he's got a special, I don't know what to call it other than gift. He's got a special gift and it's some, somehow not accredited to the spirit and more to him or to her. Someone who lays hands on the sick and prays successfully for healing is told that God still answers prayer, but the gifts of healings are not any longer really operative. Um, and, uh, and you'll notice I said gifts of healings, not gift of healings. Um, the way the text speaks of is multiple, like gifts, gifts of healings. So someone might be more prone to have been given that gift uh, uh, by way of utilizing their prayer, and they maybe have the sense, like maybe it's more they have the gift of faith. And there's gifts of healings that, that God utilizes through someone in particular. Ben, uh, Brad Sanders in our church, Brad has prayed over a handful of people uh, over times. He doesn't have the gift of healing, but he's been utilized from by the Spirit um, in ways of gifts of healings. Is that, does that make sense? So um, anyway. Um, all right. So if, if that kind of thing occurs today where, where a church could say, we don't believe in the continuation of the gifts, but then they really explain spiritual gift kind of phenomenon in a, a little bit more of a, like a less, a less Holy Spirit way and just kind of saying, that guy's really this or that or whatever. Um, there's every reason to think that that probably happens through church history as well, um, where there's some, some semblance of, of that. So certain things might not have been written down in certain ways uh, by way of saying that guy had the gift of prophecy, that woman had the word of no, like words of knowledge, that that person had gifts of service. That per- it was just like these people served, these people uh, spoke kind words. They were like words of consolation to a family, but the, but the word prophecy never shows up. Um, all right, the example that I put in here in those two paragraphs, uh, the third par- the second full paragraph and third full ba- paragraph, uh, considering this hypothetical example. Uh, Suppose that a man has been assigned to write a descriptive history of church life in what is now southern France in, say, age 45 A.D. How might he label what he saw and heard? If he was ignorant of spiritual gifts, being untaught, or perhaps a well-educated cessationist, his record would make no reference to prophecy, no record to healings, miracles, word of knowledge, etc. Such phenomena might exist, perhaps even flourish, but would be identified and explained in other terms by our hypothetical Historians. So centuries later, we discover his manuscript, and that's what we get. Right. So that's that's the picture that I'm trying to explain there. Number five. The question of some in church history, uh, in church today, that we're considering is this: if the Holy Spirit, had, if the Holy Spirit wanted uh, the church to experience a miraculous charismata, would they not have been more visible and prevalent in church history? And so, wanting to consider um, this principle that underlies that argument, apply it to several other issues. One, we all believe that the Holy Spirit is the teacher of the church. Believe that the New Testament describes his ministry of enlightening uh, scripture, enlightening our hearts, understanding scripture. Um, yet within the first generation, after the death of the apostles, even, even during Paul's life, there was significant confusion on the foundations of salvation or justification. There's already confusion on that. So was the Holy Spirit not illuminating? them? Was the Holy Spirit not active? Um, 
If God intended for the Holy Spirit to continue to teach and enlighten Christians concerning vital biblical truths beyond the death, death of the apostles, why did the church languish in ignorance in the most fundamental truths in those early years and for the next 1,300 years until the Protestant Reformation that brought it kind of back center and, and kind of had that reformation, right? And then, and then has had to have reformation like regularly for the, for the next 500 years to this day where, where it's just temporary reformanda. We, we, like we have to continually be being reformed because we're so, we're so driven to something other. Um, so uh, um, anyway, the reality is that the response would be that none of this proves that, 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 that the, if the spirit were to um, not be uh, active in illuminating scripture in some way which seemed to indicate, be indicated by people not understanding justification or not, not teaching justification properly, um, undoubtedly the response would be that none of this proves that the Holy Spirit ceased his ministry of teaching and illumination. The issue had to be with his people um, and, and not following scripture. And, um, and so the relative infrequency or absence of certain spiritual gifts during that same period of church history does not prove that God was opposed to their use or had negated the validity for the remainder of the present age. It's just that people were misunderstanding or representing it differently in some way. So whether through theological ignorance, top of next page, page six, um, both theological ignorance of certain biblical truths and a loss of experiential blessings provided by spiritual gifts can be and should be attributed to factors other than the suggestion that God intended such knowledge and power only for believers in the early church. I don't know, if any, did, did any of that make sense? That like, like there's just that reality that, that we're involved <laughs> in things and, and we're messy and we're forgetful and we don't always communicate well. We, like even last Sunday when I was preaching, we're talking about the filling of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit but in, in kind of broad, broad strokes and just really um, saying we're Spirit people but not walking by the Spirit or not being aware of the Spirit's work among us by saying, well, there's no like miracles happening that I can see. So it seems as though the Spirit's not moving. And anybody writing about Sovereign Grace Church would maybe say, you know, Spirit's not, not that active. Whereas we would say, wonderful, the Spirit is entirely active. Not, not, full, not, 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 not in, in full weight all over the place all the time and in, in these crazy, spectacular ways, but He is at work always, broad work of the Spirit and the specific work of the Spirit through the gifts and increasingly so. And so our posture is to be one of expectation, anticipation. Um, and then uh, finally, most important of all, and this is where I started and kind of want to com keep coming back to because it's specifically about church history tonight, but, but really it doesn't really matter entirely what John Calvin says. It doesn't really entirely matter what John MacArthur says. And I just picked two John names, right? So, um, uh, or John Piper, or John, boy, who's another John? I don't know, whatever, right? So there's like all these, whoever, whoever these churches, church people are, these guys that, you know, the church looks to throughout history and modern days really doesn't necessarily matter. It's, 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 it's important to us on the one hand, it helps, it helps, helps kind of encourage us along the way to see things throughout history, but ultimately we follow um, God's word and what Paul says, um, what Jesus says, promises, what 
so, so when we, like six weeks ago, I'm sure it's from uh, during the sermon, or, or like a number of weeks ago when I did the class here on the, uh, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's like, it's just like really, really important to see that this is just a continuation of who the Spirit has always been and always will be. There's been all sorts of crazy uh, thoughts about who the Spirit is throughout church history, uh, especially, especially in the last 2,000 years. Um, but, um, but in sum, neither the failure nor success of Christians in days past is the ultimate standard by which we determine what God wants for us today. We can learn from their mistakes and we can learn from their achievements, but the only question of ultimate relevance for us and the issue is, what does God's word say? And, uh, and we've already spent uh, kind of hours on that and we'll spend more hours on that next week. Well, not hours next week, but like an hour next week. And, uh, and maybe one more in, in January. Which, by the way, just to remember, just to remind you, next week we have another one of these nights here uh, where we'll teach like this, but December 14th is going to be a um, more of like a family Christmas party. Uh, all of us together, and there'll be games in different places and stuff, and it should be a, should be a good time. Um, so please, uh, please make that effort. And then December 21st, whatever you got right, the 21st and 28th, nothing. Just enjoy, enjoy your family at home and get together with people in the church. All right, Apostolic Fathers to uh, Augustine. Um, so the early church, past the, past the apostles into the first century or two, well, first three centuries, actually. So brief survey um, of church history. The first book, epistle, I want to go to is the Epistle of Barnabas, written sometime between 70 and 132 A.D. Um, it's an early Christian writing that was seen as authoritative back in the early church days, but was then uh, disputed. It's actually interesting. It was disputed along with books like Hebrews and James, disputed in the same way at certain times. <laughs> so and Hebrews and James made it uh, uh, partially, or maybe mostly, be because there was specific, um, specific connection with apostles um, and or were apostles. Uh, but there was some thought that Hebrews was written by Barnabas, and so there was it was kind of ranked in this kind of same area. But then there was um, uh, some things that weren't quite, they weren't quite heterodoxy. They were, there was, it was all orthodox, except for um, uh, th there was just some a couple of confusing things in it. And so it did not meet the standard when, when um, uh, Athanasius and all those guys uh, started pulling the canon together. So uh, anyway, but in those days, the Epistle of Barnabas was very much a respected thing. And, and I think that I it's easy for us to say, hey, the Epistle of Barnabas uh, is not in Scripture, so like, it's a bunch of nonsense. Uh, no, it's a, great, it's, a great, it's a great lead. It's a great, like, uh, um, it's uh, a blessing for us. But it did, not, it did not make that canon, so we just don't give it that level of authority. But nonetheless, it was like there's some historicity in that, right? So he says this of the Holy Spirit, he personally prophesies in us and personally dwells in us. Um, this is chapter, uh, chapter 16 and uh, page 9. So it was uh, a, a reality that just, just a step after the apostles, there was, there was this continuation. So it's like right, right away, continuation. Nobody would really think that's weird. The shepherd of Hermas 
Um, not canonical, um, because again, not written by an apostle, um, and uh, not someone that was immediately connected to an apostle. Uh, mostly orthodox in its grand scope of things, although um, uh, I've never read The Shepherd of Hermas. Has anybody read, read The Shepherd of Hermas? I was just reading about it, and it's got, I guess, like a, uh, some, some level of a false Christology, so understanding of who Jesus is, which seems like a big, like it's kind of a big deal. So, so anyway, I don't know much. All, all I know is that there's like a rea- there's, there's a bunch of this, this, uh, this writing of the sh- Shepherd of Hermas, and, and a lot of it is good, but there's this underlying like wrong. And so, it's, so it, was, it was an easy throwaway kind of thing as far as the canon goes, but still... There's a reality of like there was an um, activity of the Holy Spirit that he communicated and specifically speaking about visions and dreams, which is what Shepherd of Hermas is primarily about from what I gather. Justin Martyr, um, uh, he's, he's an apologist and he is uh, specifically from AD 100 to 165. He was with Emperor Antoninus, and Antoninus I should say, and, to, um, and specifically there was a bad persecution that was happening and so Martyr was, J- Justin was trying to uh, um, do apologetics on Antoninus and trying to say, hey, stop, stop pursuing Christians. Christianity is the real deal. Um, and here's what he says. Uh, Therefore, just as God did not afflict his anger on account of those 7,000 men, even so he's now neither yet inflicted judgment, nor does it, let's keep going to, for one receives the spirit of understanding, another of counsel, another of strength, another of healing, another of foreknowledge, another of teaching, and another of the fear of God. And this is this dialogue with Trypho, who is uh, uh, supposedly, um, whether he's a real guy or not, it's a, it's a, it's a dialogue between, um, uh, between uh, uh, Justin and, and this, this Trypho guy who is a Jew, a uh, Jewish guy. And so he's arguing in this, whether it's real or whether it's a, a, a made-up kind of thing, um, that's what he's, he's speaking of, specifically saying, hey, look, there is, there is the activity of the Spirit in this way, and that was like eighty one fifty five to 160 when that was written. So we're 100 years beyond the apostles-ish, 60 to 100 years beyond the apostles. Um, he says, uh, again, on top of page 7, for the prophetical gifts remain with us even to the present time. Again, 155 to 160, somewhere in there. The second apology in the Antonicene Fathers bo- uh, volume, um, volume 6, he says, for numberless demoniacs throughout the whole world and in your city, many of our Christian men exercising them in the name of Jesus Christ, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate, have healed and do heal, rendering helpless and driving the possessing devils out of the men, though they could not be cured by all other exorcists and those used in temptations and drugs. So other people were doing this other stuff. They had no authority, no ability to be able to do anything, but the Holy Spirit was active in the people of God to... Um, you know, to, uh, uh, to, do, to do these things. Irenaeus, uh, 8120 to 202, just a little bit later, Greek bishop. Um, he originated in Smyrna, uh, which is uh, modern-day Izmir. Um, and he, uh, he, he started and built uh, some Christian communities in, um, did you say Lyon, France? Did I say it? Lyon, you know, Lyon, France, whatever. It's like, it's like a couple hours, three hours south of uh, of of Paris, um, so it's a little bit south central, and um, that's where he kind of landed and, and, and stayed. He's really the last living connection to the apostles. Um, can you think about who else was in Smyrna? 
Uh, somebody, somebody in church history is familiar with a guy named Polycarp. There's a guy named Polycarp who was a student of the Apostle John, John the Evangelist. And um, so there's, an immediate, there's some immediate connections there, and really the last connections with the apostles. Halfway down in that Against Heresies book, um, where it starts with others, um, speaking of others, Christians have foreknowledge of things to come. They see visions, utter prophetic expressions. Others still heal the sick by laying their hands. Others are dead have even been raised, remained among us for many years. What more shall I say? It's not possible to name the number of gifts which the church scattered throughout the whole world has received from God in the name of Jesus Christ. Again, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, which she, the church, exerts day by day for the benefit of the Gentiles, neither practicing deception upon any, nor taking any reward from them on account of such miraculous interpositions. For as she, the church, has received freely from God, freely also does she minister to others. Next paragraph, same, same book, Against Heresies, just a page later. Uh, directing her prayers to the Lord, halfway through this paragraph, who made all things in a pure, sincere, and straightforward spirit, and calling upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, she has been accustomed to work miracles for the advantage of mankind and not lead them into error. Um, so preaching the truth, speaking the truth, but also being having the spirit utilized for the sake of um, the... Um, the, the good of those who are outside the church, which sounds a lot to me like Acts 4, when the apostles are praying, and they're praying for boldness, and that, that the Lord would um, do his thing, the signs and wonders. Um, not just for the sake of signs and wonders, but for the sake of like going along with the gospel message, empowering the gospel message in that way. We know it doesn't save people like when miracles happen. It's not like a salvific event. And some people, you know, don't, don't really care. But it is, it is, on the other hand, something that the Lord seems to have used in his own life and in the life of the early church and in at least through those uh, next number of hundred of years. Um, Tertullian, in uh, 155 to 225 is when he uh, lived. He was the first. He coined the term Trinity, um, spoken about on countless occasions. Uh, he was in Carthage, which is uh, North Africa, um, the city of Tunis in Tunisia. Um, and um, it's a wonderful reality. Is when you think of North Africa, we we think of we think of a mess, right? And it used to be so Christianized, so so. Um, uh, I mean, for for at least a season, um, until the Byzantines kind of went bonkers. Um, so, anyway. Uh, he was a primary opponent of uh, the heresy of Gnosticism. And I added a thing about uh, a, an ad appendix in the end, at the, at the, I think it's appendix two, on this group called the Montanists. And the Montanists are, are both, they're a confusing bunch of people. But I really would ask you to read, to read that about the Montanists. Um, they are not well respected in our circles our family of circles. Like, I don't mean Prophet Drake, but I mean like, um, they're seen as her heretics uh, for the most part. Um, and I'm not saying they weren't heretics because I think they, they, there was some heretical stuff that, that ended up happening, but there was like this pursuit of the spirit that kind of went awry. And I think we have some modern day kind of modernists that like, like there's a pursuit of that which is real and, and strong and powerful and right about the, about the Holy Spirit. And then there's just, this slant off into some sort of weird stuff where like people will say, well, I'm the Holy Spirit. I hear specifically from God and you will follow what I say. That, that kind of thing has the air of Montanus. But, but um, be, 
Tertullian actually um, partially at least became a Montanist uh, in some way. Um, and, uh, but without, there's, it's kind of like, you look, at, you look at a group in history, like if you look at, let's just say, um, I, I, spent, I spent like 36 years in the Baptist church, so I'm going to call it, I'm just going to say, if you look in history over the generations, right, Baptists have been around for 400 years-ish, whatever, so some sort of Baptist. So you look at history, and can you define Baptists in one, in one sentence? I mean, to, to, today, uh, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe you can positively or negatively, but, but like ultimately, there's so many different kind of Baptists. So, so they're all over the place, right? I'm, I, I was all over the place. Um, and, um, and so to being able to describe a certain group of people and like lump everybody into that category, like our culture is very fond of doing today, um, that, I, I think, I think, when we consider the Montanists, I think we just want to be just a little bit, a little bit careful of throwing them entirely under the bus. Okay, so just just read it. I would love to interact with you on that. I'm not a Montanist. I don't feel like like we're gonna be, we're like a Montanist church or want to be a Montanist church or something like that. If you read it, you'll understand what I'm saying. All I'm saying is that Tertullian, he is against Gnosticism, and one of the primary things against the Montanists was that they were Gnostic. But Tertullian became, in some elements, a Montanist, but he was like the primary opponent of Gnosticism. Do you see the confusion in that? So it's just a mess, kind of a messy, messy history. Um, he described the ministry of one particular lady, this is on the next page, page 8, uh, as follows. For seeing that we acknowledge spiritual charismata or gifts, we too have merited the attainment of the prophetic gift, although coming after John the Baptist, um, this who, well, I guess Baptists were around further than 400 years then, right? So anyway, um, or if it's us. Uh, this lady has been favored with sundry gifts of revelation and both sees and hears mysterious communications. Some men's hearts she understands, and to them who are in need, she distributes remedies. After the people are dismissed at the conclusion of the sacred services, she's in the regular habit of reporting to us whatever things she may have seen in vision. For her communications are examined with the most scrupulous care in order that the truth may be probed. Now, can you refuse to believe this, even if indubitable evidence on every point is forthcoming for your conviction? Um, this is one, 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 lady, one lady that Tertullian talks about in, in the, all the grand scheme of what's going on in those days. Um, skip the next thing um, on mushrooms. Um, we also have extensive evidence of revelatory visions and operation of the life and martyrs. Uh, Life of the Martyrs Perpetua and Felicitas. Um, and Appendix 1 is their story, uh, Perpetua specifically, but um, uh, man, it's like I really wanted to read this story with you, but it's too long. Um, so, so would you please take time to read that story um, together? In like uh, before bed or something, just just to read it and be encouraged, be challenged. But one of the things that took place in her life was um, uh, she was going to be thrown to the lions, right? And so that's that's the story of her martyrdom. Um, and she was scared, and she didn't know what to expect. 
And you might imagine how fearful this, this situation was. Um, she was with a bunch of, um, a bunch of young believers um, who were being trained kind of like before they were baptized. They were just being catechized. And, um, and so they were all caught and by the Roman government and taken, taken captive. So anyway, there were some babies involved. The one little sister who's pregnant. And uh, it's just, it's just a, th- there, are some, there are some spots in the story that are hard to read. Um, but she's praying for God to speak to her. And she has this like super straight up vision dream that's just so clearly a vision that gives her um, a sense of great peace. And, uh, um, and so the rest of the story explains how, how that vision that included a vision of, of, of um, who, who seems to only could only be Jesus, um, who is wel- saying pretty much confirming to her that she's going to, that, that they're all going to die. You'd think that would be just like discouraging. Wake up discouraged by that. Oh man, seriously. It's like it. It just it just stoked her fires to to go out um, with with a sense of great peace and calm to what was a brutal situation. Wonderful story, sad story that has been recounted time and time again, and is happening even today as we speak in different parts of this com- um, of uh, this part of this world. All right, um, so I already talked about the Montanists. Uh, additional evidence from the early church. Uh, the, w- the work of Theodotus, uh, late second century, uh, preserved for us in Clement of Alexandria. I, I know this might seem, uh, this probably seems like a, like just a total bunch of raw information, but t- to me it was just like one thing after another after another, and it's just snapshots. It's not even a full accounting, right? I mean, sur- surely um, I'm not going to pull together a full accounting of church history in, in one hour or 45 minutes. It's like there's just one thing after another after another of, of this evidence that the Spirit continues to work in the same kind of ways that we would say, and there's not, there's not been this cessation of gifts, and now all of a sudden in 1905 something happens in power and it all is revived. It's like it's been happening regularly all the way so Clement of Alexandria, he's speaking explicitly of the operation in his day of those spiritual gifts listed by Paul in 1 Corinthians. Origen is apologist. Uh, he's in Alexandria, Egypt, and then Caesarea uh, in particular. He acknowledges that the operation of the gifts of his day, not ex- as extensive as was true in the New Testament, but they're still present and powerful. He says in his book Against Celsus, who is a, which is a, a defense of Christianity, um, like in, uh, in like... Uh, it's contra Celsius is what the title is, so it's 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 against him and and just saying here's here's why you're wrong, Celsius, uh, who is a pagan a pagan guy, a pagan philosopher. He says uh, they're still preserved among Christian traces of that Holy Spirit which appeared in the form of a dove. Uh, they expel evil spirits and perform many cures and foresee certain events according to the will of the Logos. Um, Celsius saw it. Next page, page nine. Celsus sought to discredit the gifts of the Spirit exercised in churches in Origen's day, yet the latter pointed to the demonstration of the validity of the gospel, more divine than any established by Grecian dialectics. Uh, people would just like argue about stuff together and try to work through things uh, or not work through things. Um, namely, that which is called by the apostle the manifestation of the Spirit and of power. 
Not only were signs and wonders performed in the days of Jesus, but traces of them are still preserved among those who regulate their lives by the precepts of the gospel. So that is, um, uh, continues, continues on in history. Hippolytus, in, uh, he was a theologian in the third century, uh, sets forth guidelines for the exercise of healing gifts. Um, uh, Novation, he's a theologian also in the third century, in his treatise concerning the Trinity, he says, Indeed, this is he who appoints prophets in the church, instructs teachers, directs tongues, brings into being powers and conditions of health, carries on extraordinary works, furnishes discernment of spirits, incorporates administrations in the church, establishes plans, brings together and arranges all of the gifts there are of the charismata, and by reason of this makes the church of God everywhere perfect and everything incomplete. Um, Cyprian, uh, page four, I talked a little bit about him, spoke and wrote often of the gift of prophecy and receiving visions um, uh, from the Spirit. Um, Gregory uh, Thaumaturgy, um, uh, I think it's a hard G, um, is reported to many to have ministered in the power of numerous miraculous gifts. I've never heard of that guy. Anybody heard of him? Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd never heard of him in any church history class I took or any reading. I've just never heard of this guy. But he was like in a in a town in, in North Turkey, uh, Asia Minor, but it's like up by the up on the Black Sea. So just kind of straight due south of like um, uh, Ukraine, you know, right across the sea from Ukraine. So um, that's where he was and uh, a, a town, a city called Pontus. Uh, Eusebius of Caesarea, theologian and church uh, historian in the court of Constantine, the emperor, uh, opposed the Montanists' abuse of the gift of prophecy, but not its reality. So we see the Montanists believe in the gift of prophecy, but the way that they went about it and the authority with which, kind of like a little bit akin, uh, this, this is, I want to be, be really careful in how I say this, but there, there, are, there are those in our Christian culture today who would claim that they are the prophets of our time and that everything that they say is, is true and God's word and, and, uh, and they are specially, and, and I, I, I back away just a little bit from saying false. Uh, just, just, I, I just, I just want to, depending on what happens, right? So I just more, but it's, it's kind of like that montanist error where there's, there's, they believe, we believe in prophecy, we believe in the gift of prophecy, we believe that God gives, gives this gift to people, but where it then promotes some sense of superiority and, and declaration that causes a following, uh, it's not true. And that's kind of what was happening with the Montanists. And... Uh, Cyril of Jerusalem uh, um, uh, is a theologian in, in Jerusalem, so that's, that's where he was. He wrote often of the gift in his day. Uh, he, the Holy Spirit, employs the tongue of one man for wisdom, the soul of another. He enlightens by prophecy. To another he gives power to drive away devils. To another he gives to interpret the divine scripture. So we're talking now the fourth century, right? Athanasius, known famous, famously for his conflict with, um, with Arius, uh, who had a, an issue um, with uh, Christology, um, uh, so was a was was at least was a was a heretic. Um, 
I, I have a feeling that that Arius started out just trying to figure it out, and then he stood by his false understanding, and thankfully, like the vast majority of people came against him, against him, and called him a uh, what he what he was because he was trying to promote this and took a lot, a lot of people with him. Uh, Athanasius was the one who defended Trinitarianism. So if you specifically uh, first, so if you go to the Athanasius Creed. That is a rich, like, two-page creed, that uh, Athanasian creed, and it's just a wonderful reality of the Trinity. So at the bottom, it says, even if one rejects Athanasian as its author, this concerning the life of St. Anthony, this book, or this writing, uh, the document does portray an approach to the charismatic gifts that many evidently embraced in the church of the late 3rd and early 4th century. Uh, the influential and highly regarded Cappadocian fathers, um, uh, Cappadocia is a city in the middle, right in the middle of uh, Turkey. It's like three hours from Mark and Becca where they are. And uh, it's a beautiful, uh, super strange looking place. But, uh, but so, much, uh, so much history is there. Mid to late 4th century, um, uh, in Basil of Caesarea in particular, born in 330, spoke often of the operation of his day of prophecy and healing. Um, Here's, here's what he says on uh, the Holy Spirit, and this is this little, this little book here. Uh, if anybody wants to borrow this little, little book, um, you can feel free as long as you don't spend any money on it. Yeah. So uh, it's not, is it not plain, that's what he says, is it not plain and incontestable? So the, these three Cappadocian fathers, they are, they are revered. Maybe not in our circles, although they should be. They're revered in, in like, almost every branch of Christianity throughout history as like, like these are big, big, faithful dudes. So Basil, is it not plain and incontestable that the ordering of the church is affected through the Spirit? For he gave, it said, in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, af uh, after that miracles and gifts of healing, health, governments, diversities of tongues, for this order is ordained in accordance with the division of the gifts that are of the Spirit. So just this, again, this, this recognition of, not just a specific belief and like cognitive agreement with, but like this is what is going on. Uh, spiritual leaders in the church, such as bishops or presbyters, says Basil, possess the gift of discernment of spirits, healing and foreseeing the future, which is just one expression of prophecy. Uh, Gregory of Nyssa, um, this, the guy that, that spoke about uh, Macrina in particular, and I want to read, um, I want to read this. This is a little bit long, um, but I want to read it because this is, this is, uh, uh, I mean, Saint Macrina, um, she's known in Catholic circles, Eastern Orthodox circles, all that, but, um, but she should be known by us as well uh, by way of example. Um, a godly woman who um, ministered in the power of the Spirit and, and like, didn't just make headlines in the Catholic Church because of the miracles that happened, but, but like we would say, man, the Spirit was active in, in this, this lovely woman. Um, so she dies at, at the end of her life, right? So she dies. He says, uh, this uh, Miss Gregory says, along the way, a distinguished military man who had command, they're, so they're all crying, they're all, all upset. A distinguished military man who had command of a garrison in a little town of the district of Pontus, again, this is north Turkey, up on the Black Sea, called Sebastopol. Sebastopolis, and who lived there with his subordinates, came with kindly intention to meet me when I arrived there. He had heard of our misfortune, and he took it badly. In fact, he was related to our family uh, by kinship, and 
uh, also by close friendship. He gave me an account of a miracle worked by Matrina, and this will be the last event I shall record in my story before concluding my narrative. When we had stopped weeping and were standing in conversation, he said to me, hear what a great good has departed from human life. And with this, he started to tell his story. It happened, he said, that my wife and I once desired to visit this powerhouse of virtue, Matrina, for that's what I think that place should be called in which the blessed soul spent her life. Our little daughter was also with us, and she suffered from an eye ailment as a result of an infectious disease, and it was a hideous and pitiful sight, since the membrane around the pupil was swollen, and because of the disease had taken on a whitish tinge. As we entered that divine place, we separated, my wife and I, to make our visit to those who lived a life of philosophy therein, I going to the monk's enclosure where your brother Peter was an abbot, and my wife entered the convent to be with the Holy One, Matrina. After a suitable interval had passed, we decided it was time to leave the monastery retreat, and we were already getting ready to go when the same friendly invitation came to us from both quarters. Your brother asked me to stay, take part in the philosophic table, and the blessed Matrina would not permit my wife to leave, but she held her little daughter in her arms and said that she would not give her back until she had given them a meal and offered them the wealth of philosophy. And as you might have expected, she kissed the little girl and was putting her lips to the girl's eyes when she noticed the infection around the pupil and said, if you do me the favor of sharing our table with us, I will give you in return a reward to match your courtesy. This little girl's mother asked what it might be, and the great Matrina replied, it's an ointment I have which has the power to heal the eye infection. When after this, a message reached me from the women's quarters telling me of Matrina's promise, we gladly stayed, counting as little consequence the necessity which pressed us to make our way back home. Finally, the feasting was over. Our souls were full. The great Peter with his own hands had entertained and cheered us royally, and the holy Matrina took leave of my wife with every courtesy one could wish for. And so bright and joyful, we started back home along the same road, each of us telling the other what had happened to each as we went along. And I recounted all I had seen and heard in the men's enclosure, while she told me every little thing in detail, uh, like a history book, <laughs> which, which is what my wife does as well. It's, it's like uh, the, whole, the whole way up to Canada, she's telling me everything that's happened in the past week. It's fantastic. So I recounted all I had seen or heard in the men's enclosure. She talked about everything. On she went, telling me about everything in order, as if in narrative. And when she came to the part where a promise of a cure for the eye had been made, she interrupted the narrative to explain, what's the matter with us? How did we forget the promise she made to us, the special eye ointment? And I, the, the military guy, I was angry at our negligence and summoned someone to run back quickly to ask for the medicine when our baby who was in her nurse's arms looked, as it happened, towards her mother. And the mother gazed intently at the child's eyes and then loudly exclaimed with joy and surprise, stop being angry at our negligence. Look, there's nothing missing of what she promised us, but the true medicine with which she, feels, which, which she heals diseases, the healing which comes from prayer, She's given us, and it's already done its work. There's nothing whatsoever left of the eye disease, all healed by that divine medicine. And as she was saying this, she picked the child up in her arms and put her down in mine, and then I too understood the incredible miracles of the gospel, which I had not believed in, and exclaimed, what a great thing it is when the hand of God restores sight to the blind, when today a servant heals such sicknesses by our faith in him, an event no less impressive than those miracles. All the while he was saying this, his voice was choked with emotion, the tears flowed into his story, this, then, is what I heard from the soldiers. All the other similar miracles, which we heard about from those who lived with her and who knew in detail what she had done, th this, this is the part I really want us to take to heart. All the other similar miracles, which we heard about from those who lived with her and who knew in detail what she has done, I do not think it prudent to add to our narrative. For, 
Most people judge the credibility of what is told them by the yardstick of their own experience. And what goes beyond the power of the hearer, this they have no respect for, suspecting that it's false and outside of the truth. For this reason, I pass over that incredible farming miracle at the time of, he goes on to talk about some other things. Um, I go on to pass over this incredible farming miracle at the time of the famine, how the grain was distributing according to need and showing no sign of diminishing, how the volume remained the same both before it was given out to those who asked for it and about the, and after the distribution, and other miracles still more extraordinary, the cure of sickness, the casting out of demons, true prophecies of things to come. All of these are believed to be true by those who knew the details of them, even if they are beyond belief. But for those who are more bound to this world of flesh, they are considered to be outside the realm of what can be accepted, that is, by those who do not know that the distribution of graces is in proportion to one's faith, abundant for those who have in them a lot of room for faith. In order, therefore, that those who have too little faith and who do not believe in the gifts of God should come to no harm, for this reason I have declined to make a complete record here of the greater miracles, since I think that's what I have already said is sufficient to complete Max Wiener's story. Um, it's just more, there's, there's more to it. I, f- I found that just really, um, uh, just uh, again, just, just a, it's just a, it's just a story that is rich with the work of the Spirit in somebody that probably most people in our church never heard of. Um, so we could talk about um, the final Cappadocian guy who, who talks, uh, Gregory of uh, Nazianzen, he, he speaks about miracles, Augustine, says plenty about things in the confessions. Uh, he was a cessationist uh, on paper uh, initially when he started writing as a, as a young believer, but then as he um, saw things and experienced things, he started writing differently along the way. And so there's like four different examples there. Um, and one of them I'll read because it's crazy. Page 11 at the bottom. A certain citizen of Milan, very well known in the city, who had been blind for several years, became aware of the riotous joy of the people and inquired the reason for it. On hearing what was happening, he leapt up and asked his guide to take him there. He was led to the basilica and begged to be admitted so that he might touch with his handkerchief the funeral bier of your holy ones whose death is precious in your sight. He did so and applied... This is, this is Augustine. Loved by every reformed person in the world uh, and, and, and Catholics. Uh, everybody. Uh, most, most people like Augustine, I think, uh, from what I understand. Um, or, they, or they maybe can't stand him. I don't, I don't know. It's like there's, there's not a... There's not a it's, it's Augustine. The confessions are amazing. The city of God, uh, amazing. So he's, he, so he's speaking about this guy who's going that he might touch with his handkerchief the funeral buyer of some dead people who are believers, who, whose death was precious in the sight. So godly men and women, he did so and applied the handkerchief to his eyes and they were immediately opened. Consequences of this uh, were the wide diffusion of the story. Of course, fervent praise offered to you and a change of mind on the part of the, our enemy. For although she was not brought to the healthy state of believing, her persecuting fury, fury was at least curbed. He's referring to Justina, a, a, um, a mother of the boy Emperor Valentinian, who had taken to persecuting the church and Bishop Ambrose in particular. And he says, thanks be to you and your God. So Jack Deere, who is, um, um, you know, uh, a guy in, in our, he's alive today, he, he says this um, in his book, uh, I'm surprised by the voice of God, he says, some have objected on the basis of the somewhat odd or weird way in which this healing occurred. The blind man used 
His handkerchief to touch the bodies of two dead saints. But as strange as this incident may be, especially to people of a 21st century mindset, strangeness is not a criterion for truth uh, or lack of strangeness, uh, nor is it a criterion we'd want to use in order to decide whether something is scriptural or unscriptural. It's the power of the Spirit. They're surprised by the power of the Spirit. So anyway, there's, it's just an, it's an interesting, um, interesting story. And so the next paragraph, the last sentence, I just say, look, if, if the reality is if something like that is, it does not seem normative in history. Um, it, it's a, it's a, it was pretty unique uh, moments in time, as we see it in Acts a couple of times uh, happen with this kind of, this like a shadow, you know, an unknown hanky uh, or a cloth, whatever, and uh, it's like something similar here. So it's just a, it's just that, it's just this, it's just that we're not, we're not okay with weird and unusual, you know. And so, so we want to discern everything. We want to be mindful and wise, but just because something's kind of, kind of out there, does not mean it's not the Holy Spirit working, which should cause us in humility not to be like, nah, that. Just let's see where this goes. Let's just see the fruit will be apparent. All right, uh, quickly, spiritual gifts in the medieval period through the Reformation. Um, there's just, I mean, this, this was just a real, uh, this third paragraph down just lists a bunch of people. Not going to spend uh, really any time on this at all. But you, 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 would, you would also, though, realize the last paragraph to say that most of these people are Catholic at the time. And because, guess, guess who there is uh, during a lot of the medieval period? Um, Catholics and Orthodox. There's just like the Ro the, there's Rome and there's Rome in the west and and Constantinople in the east. And there's just these that that's there that's that's who it is. You know that's who Christ that's who Christians are, um, or at least Christians exist in those in those two areas. So uh, there's just lots of activity of the Spirit. Ignat Ignatius of Loyola, page thirteen, um, founder of the Jesuits, author of the Spiritual Exercises. Spiritual gifts, especially tongues, are reported to have been common among the Moravians, especially under the leadership of Count von Zinzendorf in the 1700s and 18th century, as well among the French Huguenots in the late 17th century, and on and on. Um, uh, Wesley defended the ongoing operation of tongues beyond the time of the apostles, and, and um, uh, that, that's, that's just uh, reality in the 17th century as well. Um, let's go down to Spurgeon. Spurgeon, who would be famously cessationist. Um, um, I don't know if you've heard these stories, but let me just share them with you. So Spurgeon uh, writes, or, or this autobiography of Spurgeon, so he says, uh, this guy says, Mr. Spurgeon looked at me as if he knew me, and in his sermon he pointed to me and told the congregation, can you imagine, can you imagine this scenario? Um, like me standing up here <laughs> and pointing at somebody and and calling them out in this in the service um, like whoo wow he pointed to him told the congregation he's a shoemaker and I kept my shop open on Sundays and I did sir I should not have minded that but he also said that I took nine pence the Sunday before and that there was a four pence profit out of it well, I did take nine pence that day, and four pence was just the profit. But how would he know that? I could not tell. 
Then it struck me that it was God who had spoken to my soul through him, so I shut up my shop the next Sunday. At first I was afraid to go again to hear him, I would imagine so, lest he should tell the people more about me. Um, but he would never say that that was a word of knowledge. As far as the gift is, gift is a word of knowledge. Uh, Spurgeon adds this comment, I could tell as many as a dozen similar cases in which I pointed at somebody in the hall without having the slightest knowledge of the person or any idea that what I said was right, except that I believed I was moved by the Spirit to say it. And so striking has been my description that the persons have gone away and said to their friends, come, see a man that told me all things that I ever did. <laughs> Beyond a doubt, he must have been sent by God to my soul or else he could not have described me so exactly. And not only so, but I've known many instances in which the thoughts of men have been revealed from the pulpit. I've sometimes seen persons nudge their neighbors with their elbow because they had got a smart hit and they have been heard to say when they were going out, the preacher told us just what we said to one another when he went in at the door. Um, on another occasion, Spurgeon broke off a sermon, pointed at a young man, declaring, young man, those gloves you're wearing have not been paid for. You've stolen them from your employer. And after the service, the man brought the gloves to Spurgeon and asked that he not tell his mom, um, because she'd be heartbroken to discover that her son was a thief. <laughs> you know, so these, like, these, are, these are real, what, what is that? It's, it's a gift of the Spirit. That's in, in Spurgeon, in Charles Spurgeon, who is a famous cessationist. So, so I, I think there's times also like when, like when I'm preaching, I don't point at anybody and do that, although I, I, I can't imagine a scenario where, where that would happen. But, but there are things that I, I've had people come up to me, and possibly some of you who have come up to me and say, it's like you read my mail. Well, I mean, I, I prepared the sermon thir Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Maybe it was an impromptu moment, I don't, you know, whatever. But it's the reality of this. God knows. God knows, and he's utilizing... He's utilizing the preaching moment, and, and that's happened in, in myriads of ways uh, among us. And it's not just insight. It's, it's Holy Spirit gifting for the common good of the church. Finally, one would have to point to the last hundred years or more of contemporary church history, which we've talked about um, concerning, uh, concerning the Pentecostal, the first wave movement, the second wave, and the third wave. The, those, those movements of the Holy Spirit in the 20th century that we've spoken of in weeks past. So in the last 2,000 years of church history, we see ample testimony, as far as I'm concerned anyway, of the continuation of the ministry and power of the Spirit through the manifold giftings promised in the Scriptures. And as such, we believe that it's unwarranted and unwise to use church history in, in elements of silence in church history concerning the role of the Spirit or not um, to, to make any specific point for cessationism. Uh, we love our cessationist brothers and sisters in Christ, right? It's just, it's just that um, we would point to a handful of verses, but, but 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14 specifically to state the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church for the common good of the church. And on top of that, if necessary, which is not necessary, but it's, it's a gift of, of history, that history gives us lots of examples of what we just believe today. That that is true, and it was true in the 800s, it was true in the 1400s, it was true in 1900s, and it was, it's true in 2022. And we should be pursuing the continued activity of the Spirit, humbly pursuing and praying for the filling of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. Next week, uh, we'll probably, I think, I think we'll probably... Um, speak specifically about certain gifts uh, and um, have more conversation about that. For now, discussion questions, we only have...
10 minutes, but if you could just get into small groups, just talk, just take one, one or two questions and just kind of talk about it. Um, talk about those, whatever question you think um, uh, would be most helpful. Um, I, I, one, one question that popped out to me initially when I wrote it down was that number two was actually number one uh, initially. How much weight do you think we should give to the experiences of Christians throughout history of the church as it relates to our own current experiences and expectations? Um, I, I personally think church history is important. I think history, period, is important uh, for us to know so that we can live life uh, with some semblance of uh, understanding that there is really nothing new under the sun, uh, be it in America or in um, uh, ancient Asia Minor. So um, anyway, go into your groups and, and just talk and then pray together and then we can finish the night up. Okay, thanks.